This morning kind of marks the end of our Advent series, and we've been walking through a series uh, called Adopting Christmas, and we've looked at adopting hope as we've uh, seen how God continues to fulfill his promises. We saw how God used the adoption of Moses by Pharaoh's daughter to protect those promises, and then we saw Joseph's adoption of Jesus uh, the following week. Um, this idea of peace that comes through God's protection uh, from the schemes of the enemy. And we saw how Joseph, his life, while we don't have a huge picture of his life, the part of his life that we see is that God uses Joseph's adoption of Jesus to thwart the plans of the enemy. And we can see that in our own lives as we relate to those who, as we're followers of Christ, we've been adopted by Christ And we've seen that uh, last week, the idea of adopting faith, that the blessing of our adoption as sons comes through faith in Christ, and that His work has already been done, it's completed, and we are His children. Well, this week we're going to be looking at adopting joy, that joy is at the heart, the center of a life that's lived with Jesus. And so as we come to this place of joy this morning, my hope is that we see that joy is both found in his person, in Jesus, and then his purpose, that it's also found in the pursuit of God's purpose. And so as we look at that this morning, I want us to kind of think about this kind of arbitrary term of joy. We, we see it in our culture, we hear about it often. We hear this season come and people talk about joy. But there is a distinct difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is predicated on our circumstances. Our world sees happiness. They talk about happiness. They live for happiness, right? We hear this term all the time. I just want my kids to be happy. The problem is, for my children, they're probably living in the wrong household, Because much of what we do is not going to necessarily immediately make them happy. God's call for us is not for us to be first happy. God's call for us is to be holy. And in his holiness, we might find joy. Joy being fulfillment and contentment that comes in him regardless of our circumstances. Knowing who he is and what he's done and the promises that he has for us. And so that's why it's important that we understand this distinction between happiness and joy. That we understand that happiness is not the primary goal of life, but holiness is. It's the other H word. And so we need to be careful this morning as we look at joy. Because Christ came into the world, and if we were to look at the circumstances of Jesus, there is very little that we would say that Jesus endured that would make him happy. He suffered persecution at the hands of men that were betraying him. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He died a death of torment, of pain, of destruction. In the moments on the cross, he was forsaken by the Father because he was carrying the weight of sin, all of mankind's, on himself. 
I don't know about you guys, but I would never describe that as a happy experience. But Christ himself is able to go to the cross with joy because of his confidence in the Father. And we too can go to Christ in joy because of our confidence in what he's done for us and putting us in relationship with the Father. So let's dive into this passage this morning. It's in Philippians 2. It's a small little portion of the scripture. And what we're going to see is that our adoptions as chil- adoption as children of God, that joy is found actually in him and his purpose. That now, as we saw Pharaoh's daughter adopt Moses, and we saw Joseph adopt Jesus, and we saw Jesus adopt us through the work of the cross, we now adopt Christ's purpose for our lives. And this is what it says in Philippians 2. Let's go ahead and stand together. Verses 14 through 18. It says this. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, in the simplicity of this passage, I pray that we would walk away with a deep sense of your purpose, a purpose that's found solely in you, And that, Father, that we would take hold of that purpose and experience your joy. The joy that was intended through Jesus. Father, I pray in my own heart this morning that you would remove distractions. That, God, that my focus would be on you and that, God, it would be your word that comes through me. Father, in each of our hearts, God, may our hearts be steadied before you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, keep us humble. Let us be humble servants who seek you. May your word transform us this morning, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, at the center of this passage lies the idea that God's adoption leads to joy in Christ through pursuing His purpose as servant witnesses. God's adoption leads to joy in Christ through pursuing His purpose as servant witnesses. As God has adopted us, it's His purpose for us that we might take on His purpose. And in so doing, it leads to joy that our lives are to be servant witnesses. Now, I think one of the things that often happens today within Christ's church is we see these things separated. Sometimes we see these things separated because our mission sometimes separates these things. All of Christ and all of life for all the world's. 
And yet, being a servant of Christ or being a witness for Christ is one in whole, one in total. That I I can't serve God apart from being a witness. And I can't be a witness apart from being a servant. Think about that for a second. Think of somebody that you've seen and that you've watched and you've seen their lives and they go tell you to do something and you look at them right away and you go, I don't see that at all in that person. Why don't you follow your own advice first, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't share our faith. It does mean that we acknowledge who we are first. It means that we acknowledge that we're sinners. But the key here is that we are servants of God, that our witness is the fact that we are a servant of God, and our servanthood is marked by being a witness of God. Now, in verse 15, at the heart of this passage, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he's giving us these instructions, and he's saying, I'm giving you these instructions because you shine as lights in the world. It's light in the midst of darkness. And what he really lays out here is really the keys to experiencing the joy of God's adoption as witnessing servants. The key to experiencing the joy of God's adoption as his witnessing servants. How are we going to shine as lights in the world and experience the joy of God, the joy of Christ? Well, notice what he begins with. It's kind of an interesting way to begin. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, that language should stand out to us for a second. He begins and he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God adopted by God through faith without blemish. The language that Paul is using here in Philippians is a sacrificial language. It's to remind us of Jesus. It's to remind us of the perfect lamb. And he's saying, listen, if you are of the lamb, represent the lamb. What he's actually saying here is that part of the experiencing the joy of God's adoption begins by us being above reproach by imitating Christ. We start by being above reproach by imitating Christ. Now, this idea of being above reproach. Well, notice what he does. He focuses here on four words. That first word is grumbling. Now, for some of us, we don't see grumbling as not being above reproach. But think what goes on inside your heart here. The Greek word here is gogomuson, and it literally means to say something in a lone tone. It's kind of the the hushed tones, right? It's the picture of, 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 I remember a comedian describing it before of a a husband walking behind his wife, just going, I'm just going to eat jello the rest of my life, the rest of my life. I'm just going to eat jello. I can't stand her. I can't stand her, right? just kind of minding his own business. Grumbling is this kind of hushed undertone. It's it's a stirring in our own spirit 
that's discontent. It actually communicates a lack of love and humility towards others. John Valford says this, he says, One of the most common failures of Christians who have lost sight of the wonder of God's grace is the tendency to complain often about simple things such as food and drink. As illustrated in the children of Israel in the wilderness, such complaining, however, is a symptom of a deep-seated spiritual problem, failure to really trust God and failure to be submissive to His providential provision. We grumble. We're actually not acknowledging the existence of God and His providence in your life. 1 Corinthians 10.10 reminds us of what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness as a result of this. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.10, it says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He puts it in line with idolaters. He puts it in line with those who were indulging in sexual immorality. And he puts it in line with those who are putting God to the test. Have you ever thought that your grumbling is just as offensive to God as sexual immorality? That your grumbling is just as offensive to God as idolatry? That your grumbling is just as offensive to God as putting Him to the test? It's not this passive sin. And it speaks to a lack of unity within the body of Christ. First Peter 4.9 adds to this. And it points out the importance of grumbling as it relates to hospitality. He says this. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What does that mean? It means that I show favor to others, that I show care to them without going, I can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe that I'm actually going to actually have to to, to stop my time to take care of somebody else. It means that we're hospitable. I mean, ever run across that person that's on the street that is asking you for food when you're driving past them, having just gone to someplace to pick up food? And in your mind, you're like, Lord, I don't think so, not today. I've had days where the Lord in my own life, it's, I've drove past a person and I'm like, I don't need this. Look at me. I'm like a camel. I got enough to, to handle for a while. And it's like, all right, let me go back. And actually, who I guess who I was really buying this lunch for was this person here, right? That's still a grumbling spirit, right? Grumbling is an undertone in our own spirit that is actually creating a sense of, of discontentment within us. It's actually exposing that discontentment. And when we grumble, we distance ourselves from the Lord. But more importantly, we don't exhibit joy, the joy of Christ. Ever been around a person who grumbles a lot? What's your first tendency? Your first tendency is to get away from him. What a downer. That doesn't display the joy of Jesus. The world's watching. We're to shine as lights into the world. Now, the second word he uses here is disputing. He says something unique about this too. 
he speaks of this aspect of disputing right in line with this grumbling and with this complaining. And he actually says that it's a part of our being without blemish. Now, in Greek, that word is dialogismon, and it's, a, it's basically like a, a, a dialogue that's taking place. But it refers to an inward reasoning and questioning. We aren't to be argumentative people. We're to be people who, who can certainly question things or disagree with others, but we should not be known as being disagreeable. We, we shouldn't be known as a person who is quarrelsome. Our, our method of communication should not be always argumentation. It shouldn't be seeking to find fault constantly with somebody else. Truthfully, we see this actually often in the church. And often church to church. There may be things that we disagree with other bodies of Christ about non-essentials, but we spend a heck of a lot of time saying that non-essentials don't matter and then spend a lot of time talking about why the other people are wrong. When in fact, we should be championing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what the outside sees, the world sees, is a unified church who may have differences, but who love one another. And God has called us to stand firm on doctrine. That doesn't mean that we don't hold doctrinal distinctives. But it does mean that if a body of Christ is proclaiming the truth, that we love that body, that we spend more time discussing what they're doing right and well, rather than arguing things that are non-essential. We need to be a people who are not always looking to disagree with somebody's opinion. Our form of communication is not one of simple debate. Because it communicates a lack of unity. So complaining and arguing or disputing communicate both a discontentment and a lack of unity, and what's not being communicated is joy. And what's not being experienced is joy. Because joy is coming from the heart of Christ. Now he uses another word here. He says blameless. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. So if we're going to be blameless, that means that we need to be a people who are not known as being a disputing people or a complaining people. See, the idea is that in terms of complaining and arguing, our unity and love for each other is not put into question. The world's looking for an excuse, and we need to not give them that excuse. Our faith needs to be attractive. It is through God's promise, this, this new promise, that they will know us by our love for one another. They will know who are the Christ's followers by Christ's followers loving each other. This is why it's so important to handle conflict biblically. 
regardless of what we think the outcome's going to be, we need to do it in God's way and allow him to work it out. That's why we don't run around and gossip about other people. It's why we go and we speak truth in love to one another. And we deal with that directly, that we are peacemakers, not simply peacekeepers. Peacemakers means it's going to get dirty for a little bit. It's going to get messy. And it might hurt. But we seek to have Christ at the center of it. That's what it means to be blameless, that we are like Christ. Without accusation. And then he says, innocent. So being without blemish really is being blameless, of which our complaining and disputing have no part of being blameless. And then he says to be innocent. It's the idea that our testimony should be pure and not mixed with sinful practices. We need to be seeking righteousness in all things. And when we speak of the truth, yet are unrepentant areas of our life, the world will actually reject the message. The idea here of being innocent, what he's saying here is that we are not in rebellion. We're not pushing against God. We're not saying one thing and doing something entirely different. But we're walking in truth and righteousness. In, in Romans 16, 19, this is what it says. It says this. It says, as a part of what we're walking him, he says, now who, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, excuse me, out of verse 25, and preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that we, was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. What God is calling us to here in our innocence is an obedience to him. Not in rebellion, but in willfulness. Not in something that we have to do, but in desire to do. So if we're going to experience joy, we need to be a people who are without blemish. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It means that we're pursuing God in blamelessness and in innocence, not in rebellion. It means that we need to be a people who are known for walking in his truth, not in conflict, not in complaining, not in grumbling, but seeing that what we say actually is revealing our heart. The second way that we experience joy in being a servant of God is that we're strengthened in God's truth, his word. We're strengthened in God's truth, his word. Notice what verse 16 says. It says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, 2 Timothy says this. He says this about the word of God. And I want us to, to cling to this truth as his followers. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we're going to experience joy... We have to be strengthened in his word. We have to be strengthened in his truth. That means that regardless of the circumstances you're facing, that you can continue to cling to God's word and cling to his promises. If God says that he's sovereign over all, do I believe that? Do I believe that the cruddy situation that I'm walking through is actually even under God's sovereign rule and reign? Do I believe the truth that he is working this out for good according to his purposes for those that love him? Do I believe it? See, if I believe it, my joy is then secure. Do I believe then as well that God's word says that there is joy that comes when I move away from complaining, when I move away from disputing? when I walk in blamelessness and when I walk in purity, not in rebellion, that there's joy. Does there joy? Do I believe that God says that my sexual purity in my dating relationship or in my marriage, that that will bring joy? Or do I want to cling to what the world has to offer and say, well, this is what the world says will bring joy, or this is what the world says will bring happiness? Do I believe that my financial security is actually in God, not in the job that I hold? Do I believe that he is the one that will provide as I step out with him in faith? If God calls me into a country where everyone is being slaughtered for their faith, do I believe that God has a purpose and can I have joy even in that? We need to be strengthened in God's word. The reason that Paul could have joy is because he clung to the word of God. He clung to the word of life. Paul looked around and the circumstances weren't too friendly to him. It's one of the reasons that as a body of Christ... We need to not be known more for our political views than we do Jesus. At the end of the day, our political views will matter absolutely nothing in the kingdom of God. We need to stop fighting on political spectrums and start fighting with Christ. Not against him, but with him. There are things that we can do in a political realm that further his kingdom purposes. And what do I mean by that? We've been talking about this issue of adoption. Well, we've seen how God has used it to protect the schemes of the enemy. We've seen over 60 million infants killed by abortion. Yeah, that's a place that we probably ought to stand It's also a place that we ought to stand when God says that we need to deal and 
care for the oppressed. Yep. But at the end of the day, what we need to be known for as Christ's church is not who we follow politically, but who we follow as the perfect one and Savior, and it's Jesus. It's why as Christians, when we align ourselves with men and women politically, we have harmed our witness greatly. We would be far better to be aligned with a system of beliefs than we would with a person. Because when we line ourselves with people, people will fail. But the only one who won't is Jesus. We need to be strengthened in God's truth. Third, the third way or aspect of experiencing God's joy as being a servant witness is that we need to willingly surrender my will for God's purposes through faith. We willingly surrendering my will for God's purposes through faith. We'll never experience joy if all we seek after is our own will. Serving God means that I'm laying aside my will for his purposes. That's what lordship is. That's why in Luke 9:23 the command and instruction to those followers of Christ and to each of us is simply this. It is this one aspect he says, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This particular passage has so much hope for us. Sin makes us believe that the desires of our heart that are so corrupt or different from his word are so natural. And he says, deny yourself. Don't go to what seems natural. Go to my word and see what is natural. He says, lay it down. Give it up. For the sake of my kingdom, give it up. That's lordship. That's lordship to say, I will lay everything that I have aside for you, Jesus. And follow him. I think in our times in my own life where pursuing my own will was met with despair and discouragement. How many times have you pursued your own will? How many times have you said, well, if I, I just had this, I'd be happy? Whether that's a person, whether that's a job, whether that's a skill set. I know for me, one of those things I can fall back into that little trap that wants to snare is, hey, Tim, if you just had your health back, it would all be good to go. It's not true. It's not true. 
Oh, it'd be nice. But my joy and my hope is not in the health in this life, right? The joy and the hope cannot be found in a person in this life. Joy and hope can't be found in a job. The eternalness that's found in joy is found when we surrender our will for his will. When we say, not my will, but yours. It's why Christ was able to go to the cross, even in the midst of pain, and walk in joy. Isn't it? It's why when the guards came out to Jesus, he was able to say, put your swords down. They wanted to fight with swords. And Jesus was saying, this is not the purpose. In fact, there may have been time to fight with swords. But this was not the time. And that's what it means to follow God's will. It means that, guess what? Today might look different than tomorrow. Because as I understand God's purpose, as I understand God's will, as I listen to God's prompting in my own life, today, God may say, lay it all down. Yesterday, I blessed you in this way. Today, I desire that you give that away. What a difference, isn't it? I remember having a conversation with somebody years ago that had come to Jesus and was working through and they had many possessions. And not that God always calls people to give away their possessions, but in his life he was looking at what he had owned and what he had had prior to coming to Jesus. And he said, all this was basically here to fill what was going on inside of my life. And now I feel like it's fruitless. And he was asking some others for counsel and He just had felt super prompted that this is what he needed to do. He needed to give this stuff away. And then he went and met with somebody else and he got counsel. And the person looked at him and said, Well, you know, God never intended that the things that you had that you were to give away. And in that moment, that person actually took what was prompting on his heart and redirected that. It actually redirected away. Not that he was obligated to give stuff away, but his own prompting was, guess what? I need to do this. I need to to kind of get rid of these things that had been idols in my life. And sometimes we can usurp what God is doing. We can, in our own kind of desire to keep what we have, encourage others incorrectly. Whereas what God is calling us to do is to come alongside one another and help seek God's will for one another and in each other's lives. We are to shine as light. What a testimony, right? When we walk with God, what a testimony. The safest place to be is inside God's will, not outside of it. And so when God calls you to go into a danger zone or a vulnerable zone or a transparent zone, that's the safest place to be not outside of it. Out of the friends that went to North Korea as missionaries, I remember getting calls from family members and others who couldn't believe that they would put their children in harm by going to North Korea to be missionaries. I remember sharing with that family member who had contacted me and I said, you know, at the end of the day, They're prompting by the Lord, the confidence they have in Jesus, 
that call to North Korea being something that is huge and affirmed by many. Guess what? The safest place for them and their children to be is in North Korea. Not here. You see, we may not know how God ends things, but what we can know is that as we walk in God's purposes, He is fulfilling things and His provision is completely sufficient. F.B. Meyer says this, he says, It's however certain that before any service that we do for God or man is likely to be of lasting and permanent benefit, it must be saturated with our heart's blood. That which costs us nothing will not benefit others. If there is no expenditure of tears and prayer, if that love of which the apostle speaks in another place which costs is wanting, we may speak with tongues of men and angels, may know all mysteries and all knowledge, may bestow all our goods to feed the poor, but it'll profit nothing if we live apart from sacrifice. Our faith is marked by sacrifice. John MacArthur says this, he says, What have you said no to in order to say yes to God's will? What have you said no to in order to say yes to God's kingdom? What have you said no to in order to say yes to God's church? That's the question. Paul lived a life of sacrificial joy, and I'm telling you, and I'll say it probably till I die someday, the reason we have such a discontent, unhappy society is because, and even among Christians, they are trying to find joy in possessions rather than in sacrifice where ultimate joy lies. And so they are chasing an illusion. As a body of Christ, we need to look different from the world. We need to shine as light in the world. And our lives need to be marked by this obedience, this sacrificial obedience to him. And then finally, what we see here is the last part of this section of Philippians. And it's an interesting piece because Paul has just described himself as being poured out as a, an offering, one that is actually worthy as unto death. It's, it's as if Paul knows he's going to die. And he's saying, it's all worth it. And he says this. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, how many of us could say this? How many of us could know that our death is coming because we're serving Christ and we're loving others in the expression and proclamation of the gospel and say, I'm glad and rejoice in it? That's what Paul was saying. I'm glad and I rejoice in my sacrifices. I don't grumble in them. I'm not complaining about them. It's the fact that I get to do it. It's kind of like giving, right? It's when God has called us to give generously, it's not that we have to do it. It's that we get to do it, right? I mean, it's, it's like learning to tithe for the first time. It's like, really, God? You see what I make. And now you're asking me to give at least 10% of this to you? Mm, I don't think so, right? This doesn't feel so good. And it's kind of like, ah, man, I have to do it. Well, I, I better do it. I just better do it. And pragmatically, God does respond to our obedience. But truthfully, what God wants from us is a cheerful heart, a joyful heart. One where we're no longer seeing 
our walk with him and our obedience is something that we have to do, but rather that we get to do because he's adopted us as his children. It's a blessing to be his child. And we get to participate in his ministry and in his kingdom here. So that last piece is rejoicing in God's work in your life and the lives of others, even to the point of death. Rejoicing in God's work in your life and the lives of others, even to the point of death. Can we say that we are faithfully serving God in a way that even unto death we would rejoice with Him and we rejoice in others? Do we rejoice over the ministry of Paul who sacrificed his life to proclaim the word of God? Who experienced both poverty and enough, he said, and yet who dies as a martyr? Can we celebrate that? Can we rejoice in it? Or do we grumble and complain that God would use such means? In Colossians 1.24, we're told this. We're told, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Can we say that we rejoice when God calls us to sacrifice for his church? And can we also say that we rejoice with others who do? We need to be a people who are humble and teachable and open to the Spirit ministering to us. And we need to be a people who speak of pride and confess pride and put it down. And we need to repent of that. See, we're often known for our complaining and arguing when we're suffering, and yet God's desire is that we rejoice in it. That we are a people who rejoice in suffering, and we are a people who rejoice in those suffering for his kingdom. We need to thank God that it's in those moments that his truth becomes clear. Have you ever noticed that when a person of faith suffers and they walk with joy, it is a stark contrast to the world? Ask doctors in a hospital when somebody is ill and suffering who is professing Christ, and what they will tell you is it is a different thing for them. It is distinct. The same is true in our world. And we hear this often. We hear this terminology. Somebody might say, oh, that person is so strong. And we've mentioned this before. No, that person is so weak, but Christ makes them strong. When people use that terminology, you are strong. Do not rob God's glory. God has given you an opportunity for his gospel, to spin around and to go, oh, it ain't me, it's Jesus. If you only knew how weak I was, but it is in Jesus that I can stand firm. See, God's purpose is that we would shine light, shine light 
into the world, that we would be his servant, radiating his very presence in our life to a world that is in desperate need of him. And as adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, we can have joy when we submit to his purpose and his plans rather than our own. May that be our prayer this day after Christmas, that Christ's birth is not in vain, and that the laborer of those who have gone before us in proclaiming the gospel, those who we then partner with in proclaiming the gospel, that we might be able to look at one another and say, our labor is not in vain because Jesus has taken it and I rejoice with you. May that be our prayer today, that we labor not in vain but that we are submitted to his purpose, walking in joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to stand with you today because you have adopted us as children. Thank you that we can rejoice with one another amidst persecution because your plan and your will is going forward. May we be a people who are strengthened in your word. May we be a people who are above reproach, that we would see our holiness as mattering, not as just something that is to be endured, but that it is important. That God, that we would see that your will is more important than our own will, and that it's safer to be there than any other place. Ultimately, God, what we desire to be is your shining light in this world, that people might know you because of us, that we might be without blemish, that we might be made to be Christ-like, that each day we might grow in holiness and righteousness and enduring purpose. Father, thank you. Thank you for the birth of your Son. Thank you for the adoption of being sons and daughters of yours. And thank you, Lord, that we will stand one day with you because of the work that you've done on the cross and that through faith we might be saved. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.